Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some of you from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One says, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, and still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. In 1954, a social psychologist conducted an experiment that's a somewhat famous experiment now in that world and became known as the Robber's Cave Experiment because it was held at Robber's Cave State Park in Oklahoma. It consisted of 22 boys, all relatively the same ages, 11 and 12, fifth grade boys heading into sixth grade, well-adjusted from the same socioeconomic class. The first stage of the experiment split the boys into two teams of 11 with one adult chaperone, and they did not know of the existence of the other group. Each group had their own cabins and their own kitchen and their own uh, food, their own areas to play, their own areas to hang out, their own swimming pool, and everything went well. The groups bonded very quickly, formed a unique identity. Uh, Leaders emerged, rules emerged, slogans emerged. They came up with team names, the Rattlers, And the Eagles, they came up with logos and made team flags. Stage two of the experiment made each group aware of the other group. And they had to begin to share resources. It did not go well. So, for instance, they had to share a baseball field, and they would argue over who got to play on the baseball field, and they would begin to compete over everything. And then that quickly turned into name-calling, and that quickly turned into pranks. That quickly turned into to vandalism. That quickly turned into one group burning the other group's flag and vice versa. And then very quickly, to the shock and dismay of the people leading the experiment, it turned violent. And the boys met for an all-out fistfight. Uh, bats emerged, and the boys showed up with, with rocks and stones to hit one another with. Fifth grade boys barely knew the other group. It happened like that. The adult counselors had agreed for the sake of the experiment to stay in the shadows and not to intervene, but obviously and wisely they intervened at this point, and they kept the boys from injury. They probably kept somebody from possibly getting killed. It's frightening on a number of different levels, but for me it's most frightening because I think those boys' fifth grade hearts mirror my heart And in all due respect, they mirror your heart. 
We have this easy, natural way to divide quickly, to find our identity in separate groups, and then to denigrate the other. It quickly turns into us versus them everywhere you look. We don't have to try to do it. I don't have to tell you that we're a divided nation. Some have said that we are the most divided since the Civil War. The one thing we can agree on is that we're a divided nation. That phrase, 81% of Americans agree with that. 87% of people over 65 agree with that statement. Uh, That's a generation that saw the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and went through Vietnam. And that group says, this is the most divided that we have ever been. We're an us versus them nation. I would like to tell you that the church of Jesus Christ is different, but it's not. The Christian World Encyclopedia estimates that in uh, the Christian movement there are, you ready for this? 33,000 denominations. (laughs) Let's just consider the Baptist. Uh, There are American Baptists. There are conservative Baptists. There are General Baptists and Southern Baptists. There's also Converging Baptist, Free Will Baptist, and Cooperative Baptist. They must be the really nice Baptist people. There's also Primitive Baptist, and then there's many different sorts of Primitive Baptist. There's Old Line Primitive Baptist, Progressive Primitive Baptist, and African American Primitive. This is all just within the Baptist movement of 33,000 denominations. We are an us versus them Church, we're just like those boys in the robber's cave. In a world that's coming apart, is there hope? Yes, there is hope. The way of Jesus is our hope for coming together in a world that is coming apart. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. I read from this passage earlier, verses 10 through 17. Get it up on your phones. We have Bibles in the back you can always grab when you come in. We're in the fifth week of a series called Together. The premise of this series goes back to the early pages of Genesis, that we're not meant to be alone. That's not how we were made. We don't do well in isolation, and yet we've got this loneliness epidemic that's literally killing us. What is the answer? The answer is to come out of hiding. That's how we define vulnerability. Sin drove us into hiding. We must come out of hiding. To seek intimacy, which we're defining as to be known and loved. We're made to be known and loved by God and others. Jesus models how to do it, and Jesus provides the power how to do it in the cross. He hung alone on the cross, bearing my sin and your sin to break the power of sin and death so we can come out of hiding and be known and loved. It's not easy. Two weeks ago, I talked about intimacy, being known and loved in relationships. It doesn't just happen. You have to cultivate intimacy like you cultivate a garden. And what I encourage you to do is to reach out to someone in your circle or someone you want to be in your circle and invite them to a meal. How's that going? How'd that challenge go? Some of you are hanging your head in shame. It's okay. There's no shame here. Some of you have done that and way to go. And if not, this is a reminder. Do it. It's, it's scary. It's vulnerable. But there's no other way. If we want to be known in love, we've got to get in proximity, spend time with others. We transitioned uh, last week to the second part of the series, which is considering how this entity, the church, Uh, cultivates relationship and helps us to come together in community. And Pastor Paul talked about when we get in the rhythms of going to church, it brings all of our hearts together and reorients us around one thing and shapes us and forms us not only as individuals, but as a collective community. This week, we're going to consider this idea 
of being a divided nation, of being a divided church, of having divided relationships everywhere we look? How does the church help us come together in a world that's coming apart? Our text is from 1 Corinthians 1, the very beginning of that letter. Let's get a little bit of context. We don't want to ever look at Scripture without context. Paul planted the church at Corinth. During his second missionary journey, he had three major missionary journeys. Corinth was a very prominent city in the first century. In the first century, it had already eclipsed Athens as the most prominent city in that area, which is now modern-day Greece. It hosted the Isthmian Games, which is second to the Olympics. Uh, They found a theater that holds 18,000 people and a concert hall that holds 3,000. It was very, very diverse, Jews and Gentiles, people from all over the world, all levels of socioeconomic uh, stature was was involved in the Corinthian city. One uh, first century scholar said that Corinth was like the combination of New York, L.A., and Las Vegas, all in one city. So that's kind of our city. Paul is writing in AD 51. He arrives, uh, he, uh, or actually he's writing in AD 54, but he arrived in Corinth in AD 51. He was going to just stay there for a short while, plant the church, and then he had a dream and God told him to stay. So he stayed for a year and a half, which is a long time for Paul to stay in a city in which he is planting the church. So he, he uh, leaves after that time. The church is healthy. It's growing. He's feeling good. He moves on. And then we find him in Ephesus. He was there for three years. At the end of his stay of Ephesus, he writes this letter, 1 Corinthians. It's actually 2 Corinthians because the first letter we don't have. And so we don't know what what happened to it. So Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, and he is responding to a letter he's received from the church. He's also responding to some conversations he's had with members, and he said it in the passage I read earlier, of Chloe's household. We don't know exactly who that is. Chloe must have had a connection, and members of her household had a connection with the Corinthian church. Paul's read, Paul's heard, and he's heard some disturbing things. He's heard about sexual immorality. He's heard about litigation. But the underbelly of all of that... And what breaks his heart is he's heard the church that he left that was so united is now divided. They become like the robber's cave boys. They're at each other's throats. The hope of this passage as we look around at a divided world, a divided church, is that the pathway that Paul gives them for coming together worked then and it works now. And we're going to explore that pathway this morning. After some initial greetings, Paul talks about four camps, like the robber's cave experiment had like the two cabins. There's four in the Corinthians church, and Paul named them in the passage I read at the top of the message. Camp number one is the Paul camp. He says, you say, I follow Paul. Paul's deeply disturbed by that. He's not setting aside his authority as the church planter, his authority as, as their apostle and their pastor. He leans into that authority in these letters as he calls them out on different things. What he's saying is, are you kidding me? Don't follow me. And he uses his authority to point them to Jesus. So there's the Paul camp that says, I follow Paul. That's understandable. He planted the church. He spent a year and a half there. Second camp is the Apollos camp. I follow Apollos. Apollos came from Alexandria. He was very learned and he was very eloquent. And Corinth was all about eloquence. They were a city of eloquence, a city of philosophers. So we know Apollos came through after Paul left, did some teaching, and he was a great preacher. We know Paul wasn't a great preacher. Paul says numerous times that he's not eloquent with words. Apollos was. He had the crowd swaying and swooning, and there was a, a camp that emerged. and said, I, I like this guy better. He's a better preacher. Let's go with Apollos. Apollos didn't agree with that. At the end of 1 Corinthians, he talks about being under Paul's authority, and they were both, I'm sure, dismayed by this split. But that was second camp. Third camp is I follow Cephas, uh, Peter's name. 
Peter was the most prominent disciple. This is also understandable. Uh, it's likely that he came through at some point and did some teaching. He's Peter. He's kind of the first century Christian rock star. So when he came through, there was a camp that emerged that said, I follow that guy. I like him. He's strong. He was with Jesus. And then the last camp is, we don't really know or understand this camp. It's the Christ camp. That's the, that's the camp that you think you'd want to be in. But something's weird about this camp. And there was all, in the first and second century, even the first three or four, there was all sorts of heresies that grew up, and many of them around Jesus. One was that, uh, let's not worry about Jesus, the physical human. It's just the spirit of the Christ. That was a heresy. So perhaps it's, it's this is cropped up in this church, kind of a form of Gnosticism and Paul's like, that's not the way. He's less concerned with calling them out on what they're teaching and more concerned with the division and the camps that have come up in this church. So Paul asks three rhetorical questions to kind of drill into what's going on. He's like, was Christ divided? Was Jesus divided? Is the way of Jesus really about partisan groups at each other's throat? And the answer is no, it's a rhetorical question. Jesus, the way of Jesus is meant to unify and not divide. Then Paul directly talks to those in his camp. He's like, did I die for you? Let's just go back to basic theology. No, I'm still living. I didn't die for you. And then Paul baptized some. It's kind of funny you see the human side of Paul as he's trying to remember who he baptized. He can't remember. And he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you because you're all screwed up in your head about this. You think the person who baptized you, that's whose camp you're in? I'm just a dude. And you witness baptisms over at our baptismal. I've baptized people in there. Baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Christ, buried with Christ, risen to walk a new life. As an aside, if you have not been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, you need to do so. Almost anybody in this first century church that followed Jesus had been baptized. And baptism was a thing across the first century. You go to a temple, you'd be baptized into the way of that God. So Paul's like, look, when you're baptized, you're baptized in the way of Jesus. You show him allegiance. I'm just a dude. I just follow him as well. Come on, what are you guys doing? Cut it out, is kind of what Paul's saying. So we, we have these four camps, and we have the rhetorical questions that have come up. The, the Corinthian church was, in effect, saying the same thing that the rattlers and the eagles and the robbers' cave experiment. They had, they had formed these groups with this distinct identity. It was an us versus them mentality, and it was corrupting the way of Jesus. We do it as well. It's so easy. I'm with Paul. I'm with Paulus. I'm with Peter. I'm with Christ, whatever that means. We have a capacity and a natural ability to create an us versus them thing in our hearts towards others that are different toward us. That is the heart of division. Is there hope to come together in a world that's coming apart? And and Paul thankfully says, yes. What is his answer? As we follow the, the, the logic of the passage, his answer is to drive them back towards unity. We see this in verse 10. I've highlighted uh, the words that are the same Greek word. When, when we see, in, even in English, when someone's repeating something, they're trying to call attention to it. Paul's repeating the same Greek word here. Now, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement. This Greek word just means the same. And that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Biblical unity, and this is important to understand, is not uniformity. Look at all of us. We're, we're very different. The way of Jesus is not trying to get clones that we all look the same and do it the same way and we find uniformity. That means acting the same way. We're looking for unity. Unity. When we look at 
the first century church and we read the book of Acts, that's the history of the first century church, we see them having all sorts of vibrant debates about theological things, about do we eat meat sacrificed to idols, and on and on and on. They would have rigorous debates. They bring different viewpoints. They're Jews and Gentiles. They're from all over the world. But what's the one phrase we see at every point that they had disagreement? It says that they got together, they discussed, they listened, they prayed, and they made a decision. Here it is, in one accord. I made a lame car joke about that two weeks ago. I won't repeat it, but it was a good one. That's the phrase, thank you. That's the phrase that you hear, in one accord. Our elder board here operates the same way. We're diverse people. I like that. I want diverse elders. It makes us stronger. And when we decide something about this church, we pray, we listen, we get expert opinion. And behind closed doors, we have some rigorous but loving debate. But we make a decision. And when we make a decision, we come together in one accord. We speak with one voice. Paul's not seeking for everybody to morph and look the same way. We'll talk about that next week. We're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 12, which all of us are given distinct spiritual gifts and bring that to play as part of the body of Christ. He's not looking to flatten that out. He likes diversity, but he is calling them, and here's what he's going to do, to something that, that will unify them that's far greater than what divides them. And you might ask what that is, and we'll get to it in just a second. What is that word Unity. The word unity in the, group, in the Greek is a really beautiful word. It literally means, and some of your translations, translations may have this, it means to be knit together. The same Greek word is used in Mark 1 or 2, I think, for when, uh, when the disciples were mending their fishing nets. They're torn, and they're mending them, and they're bringing them back together. I think of quilts, not that I make quilts. I'm sure that's shocking to all of you. But the best I can understand quilts, I understand the basic premise that you have all the different kind of patches, right? Quilt people. And you knit them together. They become one. The Greek word also represents this idea of harmony. And we just did this. We just experienced this. Those of you who have, have a music background understand this. We have all these different instruments, all these diverse people, all these diverse voices up here. And yet I thought it sounded pretty good. I thought it, you sounded pretty good. That's harmony. We're blending together. That's unity. We're not, we're not saying be all the same, but we're coming together to make something beautiful that's greater than what we could if we were alone. The Greek word for division is schismata. And we get our English word schism from it. It was used for political parties and factions in the first century. And it means to tear apart. So the answer when something is torn apart, biblically, Paul says, is like we mend it back together. We knit it back together. How do we do that? What's the thing, for those of us who follow Jesus, that is the thing above everything that unifies us? Paul's on it. And this is the logic of the passage. Look in verse, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 17 and 18. He gives us the answer. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is the foundation of our unity? It's 50 feet above me in the air. It's the cross. The, the, that's what Paul's telling us. The cross is what helps us to come together in a world that's coming apart. Paul knows their only hope, and our only hope, 
is to turn our eyes from ourselves to the cross. That will link us back up. That will mend us back together. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, a little later on, he says, For I am determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. At the heart of all division, and think about this when it begins to happen in your heart and when you see it in the world, at the heart of all division is ego. It's arrogance, which leads so quickly, especially in church world, to self-righteousness, which always always leads to division, dangerous division. Even look at the words of these factions in the Corinthians church. There's no we, it's I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Divisions reek of self-righteousness. Unity is drenched with humility. Paul is pointing them away from themselves and pointing us away from ourselves to the cross. In the book, in the letter to the Galatians, he says, this is Paul speaking, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turning our eyes to the cross is our hope for coming together in a world that's coming apart. C.S. Lewis wrote a book on hell called The Great Divorce. And he, he was clear that he wasn't trying to tell us what hell looked like. It, it's, it, you know, that's a whole other topic of conversation. He was trying to construct, as he could brilliantly do, a story of the components of what he thought hellish living was like. It's a, it's a great book. So the narrator, the main character, shows up in his version of hell. It's called Graytown. And he kind of, he's trying to get the lay of the land, what goes on here. And he says, well, the person telling him says, hey, people usually arrive, and they attempt to connect with the other people here, and they just begin to fight and quarrel, the same word that, that Paul uses for the Corinthian church. And then they separate, because there's tons of space here, and everybody can have that kind of their own house. And they separate and they just move. And, and, the, and the, the main character's like, well, what, what's happened to like people that showed up a long time ago? And he hands him a telescope and he's like, look out. He said, you can see millions of lights, solitary lights of people that just keep moving further out to be away from others. That's Lewis's version of hell is the division that drives us apart and cuts off our relationships with one another. I think he's spot on. There is so much at stake in this, so much. The, the, the writers of Scripture talk all the time about division and unity. Paul's most famous letter, probably his most impactful, is a letter to the Romans. Sixteen chapters of hardcore, awesome, world-changing theology. He gets to the end, he's doing his normal greetings. Second to last verse, Paul talks about division. Like he, it's almost like, oh, i got to remind them of this because nothing's more important. And Paul says, stay away from divisive people because they're not serving Jesus, they're serving their own appetites. When he's counseling Titus, who was a young pastor, and he's writing the letter to Titus, he says, Titus, if you encounter a divisive person in your church, warn them once, warn them twice, and then have nothing to do with them. So much is at stake. In Jesus' last really in-depth time, his last intimate time with the disciples before his death. He's in the upper room and he's teaching on all manner of things. But when it comes down to the heart of the man, you can just see Jesus thinking, okay, I, got, I don't have much time here. I don't, these guys are going to plant the church. They're teenagers. They're, they're a wreck. What do I talk to them about? And his prayer for them is this. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, 
that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me as you have, and has loved them as you have loved me. He says it twice. What's at stake? When the world sees division in the church, they're like, that's about the same as everywhere else. But Paul's saying, if you can come together, if you can realize how you're linked with this far greater thing, then the world will know. He says in his prayer twice, that the Father has sent me. And my disciples will know they're loved as you love me. So much is at stake. So a question as we go into the separate pathways of our life, as we leave today and we do life wherever the Spirit of God leads us to do life, and we represent this church and this local body, the question is, are you unifying or are you dividing in how you interact with people and how you talk with people and what you post on social media? Are you bringing people together or tearing them apart? There's so much at stake. So how do we do that? What are some practical ways? How do we, how do we bring people together in a world that's coming apart. In 1952, Democrat Adlai Stevenson uh, lost the presidential race to Dwight Eisenhower. He lost by a lot. And he was disappointed, put a lot of work into it. And he gave this concession speech that's been called the greatest concession speech of all time. Uh, He's been called the most beautiful loser, which I think was a compliment. This is part of his concession speech. He says, that which unites us as American citizens is far greater than that which divides us as political parties. I urge you all to give General Eisenhower the support he will need to carry out the great task that lies before him. I pledge him mine, for we vote as many, but we pray as one. How do we we cultivate this coming together in a world that's coming apart? We must remember that what unites us is greater than what divides us. We must remember, followers of Jesus, that what unites us is greater than what divides us. Paul talks about this in the the very verse that precedes the passage that we read. Let's look at it. Verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This word fellowship is a key word in the New Testament. It's the Greek word koinonia. It means commonness or things that we hold in common. My, my, my New Testament scholar friend Nije defines it as sharedness, even though he knows that's not an English word. It's a great idea, sharedness. And Paul is making the point And as he knows divisions in this church, he's like, okay, how do I do this? How do I unwrap this? He's like, you have sharedness in Jesus, so you have sharedness in one another. You are linked by something far greater than what divides you. That was evidenced and experienced and embodied in the Corinthian church as it is today. We talked about the importance of meals in the first century and the importance of meals now. This is koinonia. This is sharedness. When we gather around a table and we're sharing food and we're sharing drink and we're sharing space and we're sharing conversation, this is koinonia at its heart. What did that look like in the first century? I think we can make a pretty accurate guess. So we, let's pretend this is a dinner party in the first century. Are you with me? Can you do that? Let's get in our creative spaces and we see there's name cards. Someone put name cards. Who is coming to this dinner? Let's see. So we have... A Pharisee. Pharisees get a, get a bad rap, rightly so, but we know that thousands of Pharisees came to follow Jesus. And we know that Crispus, who was mentioned in this passage, was a synagogue ruler, likely Pharisee who came to Christ. Here he is. So we have a Pharisee at our Corinthian dinner party. Next, we have a former temple prostitute. This was a thing 
in the first century, every major city, all kinds of temples. Part of worship is you would go and have sex with a prostitute to worship that God. It's despicable. It was happening. Corinth was known for its female prostitutes, temple prostitutes. We know there was at least 1,000. It was so prominent, there was a phrase in the first century called the Corinthian girl. We also know the early church, the way of Jesus, attracted these women. They left that lifestyle. Their lives were forever changed. It is likely there was a Corinthian girl at this dinner party sitting next to the Pharisee. What did they talk about? We have a Corinthian academic. Corinthian, it was like, it was like Madison where I'm from. It was a very academic community. They love philosophy. They love reading. They love poetry. So we have our Ph.D., poet sitting at the table. We have our single businesswoman. That's who we think Chloe was. The early church was led by women in, in a large degree. They were patrons. Men still die younger than women. They certainly did in the first century. So it was common to have a man die. The woman would come in and take over the business. A lot of the early church was, the patrons were women. The houses in the church met. They were led by women. We think that was Chloe. So here we have Chloe, this, this single businesswoman at this dinner party. We have a slave. One-third of the Roman Empire was enslaved. Many of them by choice. They were paying off debts. They were choosing it as a lifestyle. Slaves didn't get invited to dinner parties. Slaves served the dinner party, not in the church. And it's likely in the church in the first century, there were masters that would come to church. And in that church, their slave was an elder or a leader serving them communion, like, and then we have a Roman centurion. We know even in Jesus' ministry, we we see a a number of instances where Roman military folks seem attracted to the way of Jesus. Gaius, who was mentioned, we think he was from Rome. We think he was also a patron of the church, that that he housed one of the house churches, and it's likely that he did military duty, that he was a Roman centurion. I mean, I'm guessing, right, but maybe not far from it. We know the church was infiltrated with tax collectors and, and revolutionaries and dignitaries and social outcasts and Jews and Gentiles and people from Europe and Africa and the Middle East. We know that. And they came together in Koinonia. Did it always go well? No. We're reading about how it didn't go well. But they figured it out largely. They listened to what Paul had to say. We know without a, without a doubt they changed the world. Do you think that could have been because they figured out how to come together in a world that was coming apart? I think so. The, one, of the, uh, one of the greatest sports upsets of all time was the 1980 Winter Olympics men's hockey team. I remember I was nine years old. I remember my dad, where I was staying, when my dad called me in and was coming in the third period, he's like, you might want to come in, son, and watch this. I'm glad he said that. So th- those of you who are younger may have seen the movie Miracle or may have heard about it. But the American Olympic hockey team, the men's hockey team, was made up of a, of a ragtag collection of college kids, 18 and 19-year-olds. They never played together. They were going up against the mighty Russians, grown professional men. The Russians had won the last four gold medals in the Olympics. And during that stretch, they had gone 27-1-1, and outscoring their opponents 175-44. to They had played the college Americans earlier in the year, beating them 10-3. to and yet on that faded day, this ragtag group found a way to come together and perhaps uh, it's the greatest upset of all time. Some would call it that. I have some personal connection here. Mark Johnson, 
the leading scorer on this team is a friend of mine. His kids uh, went through my youth ministry back in Madison. Mark's the, the woman's hockey coach there, a great dude. I was over at his house for a life group one night, and I asked him if he could find his gold medal. He, like, found it in a drawer somewhere. And so I wore it around the rest of the night. I thought about making a run for it, but <clears throat> I didn't think that was very hospitable. Herb Brooks was their coach, and if you've seen Miracle, you know, this is one of the ways is memorialized in the movie that he got them to be unified. He knew their only hope was to come together. And so he would have them do wind sprints. In the movie, they're about to puke. They're on the ice, and he's killing them. And then he would have them, he'd be like, name, and who do you play for? And they would be like, ugh. And so in Mark Johnson's, he's like, Mark Johnson, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and ugh. And he'd have them do more wind sprints. And they're like, what is up with this guy? Finally, weeks in, one of them got it. Michael Ruzioni was the captain of the team. And he's down on all fours and he's like, who do you play for? He's like, Michael Ruzioni, United States of America. And then like that changed everything. Because that group of boys understood that what united them was greater than what divided them. That was true for them. It's so much more true for us. So much more true. Here's what Paul writes to the Ephesian church. Make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and end all. How do we we come together in a world that's coming apart? Another thing we need to keep our our eye on is that we got to keep the main thing the main thing. Philip Yancey illustrates that with a magnifying glass. He said he had this encyclopedia with really small writing and it came with a magnifying glass and when he'd be reading it the words in the middle of the magnifying glass were crystal clear but all the words on the edges were blurry that's how a magnifying glass works and he said what happens in the church is we take the magnifying glass off of Jesus and we move it on to some other issue and then guess who becomes blurry to find unity to come together in a world that's coming apart we have to keep our focus on the main thing there's this quote that's that's gone down throughout church history no one knows who said it but everybody seems to like it cuz they just keep repeating it and it's this in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty in all things love what is the main thing it's 50 feet above me we're, we're broken people. We got broken hearts. We go our own way. We try to play God. It doesn't go well. God came, put on flesh, bore my sin, bore your sin to break the power of sin and death. And then he rose again that we might be brought into the family of God as brothers and sisters. Paul says that phrase twice. That is the main thing. And that is so much greater than what divides us. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is from John 8. And we, we, it's from the perspective of Jesus, and he walks up, and he walks up on a mob. And he walks up on a mob of, of church people. And, and these church people are holding stones, and they're encircling a woman who is in the dust, caked in dust and caked in shame. Apparently, she's been caught in the act of adultery. So they're holding stones, these church people, filled with ego, filled with self-righteousness, just like those robbers, caves boys, that so quickly turns to stone throwing. And Jesus comes onto the scene. And I, can you picture it? Can you see it? I, I try to imagine these stories in the scripture. Who, who are you in the story? <laughs> I've, been, I've been both. I've been, I've been the one holding the stone, ready to throw. I've been the one in the dust. I can, I can relate to both. What, what did Jesus do? 
Jesus came in, you could picture the, the circle parting. I can picture the people holding stones going, uh-oh, Jesus is here. And then Jesus, so beautiful, Jesus gets down in the dust. And he, and he kneels down in the dust and he's about to write something, but I think more importantly, he wants to make eye contact with, with the woman. He wants her to know she's not alone, that she's okay. I can even picture her giving her a little wink and saying, it's okay, I got you. Just hang tight. And then he draws something we don't know. Uh, it's one of my questions when I get to heaven. I want to know what he drew. I think maybe he drew an arrow to the dude she had been caught with who was standing in the circle holding a stone. That's how it works. It's my own pet theory. And then Jesus, he asked this incredibly brilliant question. Didn't Jesus just have a way with one question to get to the very heart of the matter? How in the world would Jesus bring unity to a circle of self-righteous stone throwers and a woman cloaked in shame? No way. He does it with one question. He says, hey, <clears throat> anyone who has no sin can throw the first stone. And then as John records it, there's no verbal answer, but there's an answer. And listen for it. Here's the answer when Jesus said that. Hey, if anybody is without sin, you can throw the first stone. What did you hear if you were there that day? Again and again and again and again. What unifies us more than anything is our need for grace. Is our need for grace. Amen? Grace is there hope. And I know I'm with you. Sometimes I'm hopeless and I read the news and I see my own broken device of heart. Grace wins the day. Grace wins the day. Grace comes in to divided communities and divided families and divided churches and divided nations and stitches us back together. Grace is the very heartbeat of the cross. And we also desperately need grace. You need grace and you need grace and you need grace and you need grace and you really need grace. I didn't point at anybody in particular. I mean, right, we all do. Above all... This dude needs grace. I think I heard my wife say amen somewhere, and she's not even here. <laughs> grace brings us together in a world that's falling apart. Stage three of the robber's cave experiment, they're like, what do we do now? We didn't see it going this way, but they found a way forward. They found a way to bring these fifth grade boys together, and moms of fifth grade boys and dads of fifth grade boys, I bet you can guess what it was. It was food. <laughs> they got both groups in the kitchen, and they gave them ingredients. And they're hungry. I mean, fifth grade boys are hungry like every two minutes. And they're like, you guys got to make a meal together. And it was rough at first, but soon, very soon, they established koinonia, a sharedness. And that is, that's what happens it, it, when we come to the Lord's table. That's why we do it every Sunday. Because look at how diverse we are. You don't even know. I know more than you. I have conversations. I have coffees. I have lunches. with You guys are so diverse. It's so beautiful. And so we think in our heads, like, I could never have a meal with, like, a Democrat or a Republican or a Dallas Cowboy fan. <laughs> yes, you could. They're amazing people. Don't tell me that when you see what was going on in the early church. It's possible because what unites us is so much greater than what, what divides us. And that's why we come every Sunday to the Lord's table. We, we, we come to the bread and Jesus is like, this is my body and it's 
broken, not just for one or two of you, but all of us. And this is the cup. This is my spilled blood that was not spilled for just one or two of you, but all of you. And the table, as we come to it as a feast every Sunday, we come as one. And here's the brilliance of Paul, the writer. He's ahead of us in all this. He knew what was happening in their minds and hearts as he constructed this audience. Here's what he said 10 chapters later in 1 Corinthians. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a koinonia in the blood of Christ? A sharedness? Is not the blood that we break a koinonia, a sharedness in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. As we come to the Lord's table today and every Sunday, it's an opportunity to celebrate the hope of coming together in a world that's coming apart. And may that be prevalent in our hearts, followers of Jesus, as we come to the table uh, this morning. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this, this act of worship, and that's what it is. And Jesus was no fool, and he knew the divisive hearts of men and women and children and everyone that he created. And that's why he said, do this often in remembrance of me. Because you live in a world that's coming apart. You live in churches that are coming apart. You live in families that are coming apart. Do this in remembrance of me. That you come to one table, one bread, one cup, one family. And we do forget. Have mercy on us, God, as we forget. And as we remember, though, God, as we remember, and we leave this place today diverse, but brothers and sisters in Christ, ground level at the foot of the cross, all in need of grace. As we remember that and we live that way, we can change the world. And give us the strength and the grace and the mercy to do that today for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said.